Welcome to Necessary Rebels. I'm Sandra. And I'm Kanna. We're two professional women who are passionate about tackling racism and inequalities in life and work. Whether you're in the USA or the UK, change is happening. Do you want to know how to be actively anti-racist? Do you want advice on challenging racism? Do you know how to have those uncomfortable conversations? Then lean in and join us with great tips from professionals on how to be a necessary rebel. Hi, Gemma. Welcome to Necessary Rebels. It's so nice to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'm going to let you introduce yourself. But first, I want to just let people know how we kind of started our conversations. We got in touch through Brown Girl Diaries. And they were doing some work around Windrush and Indo-Caribbean heritage and how it relates. I just found it really, really interesting and wanted to bring you on the podcast to talk more about that. So let me let you introduce yourself and then we'll get started. Yeah, sure. So I am Jana Ali. I'm a designer from London. I kind of base my designs around social and political topics, but Really what it's been about so far has been my ancestry and the underrepresentation of my ancestry. And I also work in Hounslow Council. I rehouse and resettle um, the refugees that come into our community. And so far I've just been basing most of my work about how we kind of came to London and a bit about what people don't know about the Caribbean so far. So yeah. Yeah, there's there's so much we don't know, isn't there? Between the arrival of the HMT Empire in Russia in 1948 and the passing of the 1971 Immigration Act, half a million people came to the UK from the Caribbean. Half a million people. Can you imagine yeah. that? Half a million people. Yeah. In the aftermath of the 2018 Rinrush scandal, the story of the Rinrush generation is now more widely known than ever. But is it the whole story? And this is what I'm getting from you because I didn't realize you're part of this story. Tell us a little bit more about your Indo-Caribbean roots. What does it mean to be Indo-Caribbean, first of all, and how your family came to be here? Yeah, so Indo-Caribbean is a population in the Caribbean with Indian ancestry. And I think if people actually thought about the people that they see in the Caribbean and the influence, especially in the culture and the food and the music, it isn't actually that hard to believe that there's Indians in the Caribbean, especially when you think about the curries and the rotis and soca Absolutely music. Absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And chutney music. People are subconsciously aware that there's some sort of Indian influence there, but I don't think they're really aware of the different ethnicities that actually lie within the Caribbean. So after slavery ended, the British decided to do something quite sneaky. Um, they basically made up a whole new form of slavery, but made it look like it was legal. It was called indentureship. And what they did is they recruited laborers from India. And at the time, these people would have been not very well to do. They didn't read or write English or speak English even. They were promised a wage and that they would be taken somewhere where they can work the land and it'd be an opportunity for them to prosper, basically. Mm -hmm. The people that they were targeting were people who were stuck in poverty. Often there were women who were widowed or divorced. And in India at that time, if you were a widow or divorced, your life was basically over. 
there was no role for you in society anymore. Or it was women who were trying to escape some sort of abuse or lifestyle that didn't fit what they wanted. And so they only had a fingerprint as their signature. So realistically, they didn't know what they were signing. First, they were transported to Guyana and then to Trinidad and then taken to the rest of the West Indies. Not all West Indian countries got them, got indentured labourers. It was only a few. And they were taken to the exact same situation as slavery was built on. So they were abused. They were not allowed to leave the plantations without their master's permission, which would rarely ever happen because Mm. they would be scared that they would Mm. speak out. And the wage that they were paid was minuscule. It was it was nothing. It wouldn't buy them anything. It was very anything. low. Yeah. Mm. So this was a way for the British to kind of continue doing what they were doing, but make it look good, make it look like they weren't doing it. And this has been hidden throughout history. So no one really understands how Indians got to the West Indies. No one really understands that they're even there in the beginning. It was just a very well-hidden piece of history. It's so well hidden that even Indo-Caribbeans growing up in the new diaspora, they don't even understand. I didn't even understand my heritage. For us, it was such a lost piece of identity. And so it was only when my grandmother passed away, which was just before my final year of university. And coincidentally, it was around the same time as all the Windrush scandal stuff was happening. And so I was really looking into her identity because I knew I was from the Caribbean. When I would go to family functions, there'd be soca music playing and Caribbean food. And so I knew all those elements. But for some unknown reason, I always felt isolated. I never felt like I was a part of the Caribbean community. And I never felt like I was a part of the Indian community either. So I didn't understand, like, who am I? Like, why do I not fit into either of these categories? What makes me different? And so I kind of said, well, let me just look into her history a bit. And as I started to research more and more, and I don't know if you ever experienced this, but a lot of people from the West Indies, they like to romanticize a lot of the history. There's lots of embellishment as well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so sometimes you can't get the truth from from your family because, I mean, I understand they're trying to make the best out of the Mm -hmm. situation, but to be able to find out the truth and what actually happened to the people that I came from was so difficult. And it was only when I started to do it myself that I started to understand, hey, like, we're a part of this Windrush thing. I knew my ancestors came to the UK at the same time as Windrush, but for me, I never put two and two together because when you look at the Windrush, you see it through an Afrocentric scope. You never, ever see anyone else, no other ethnicities that came during that time. For our listeners, some of which might not be familiar with Windrush, Britain invited people from the Caribbean to work after World War II. The empire needed the labor to rebuild post-war and the Windrush migration set the tone for mass migrations and significant contributions Mm. of the Caribbean diaspora to British society. So really invite Caribbeans over Mm -hmm. to come in and work to try and rebuild the UK at that time. The fact that the Indo-Caribbean people aren't really portrayed within the Windrush is really down to a multitude of things. It's not just perhaps we were a minority of people that came. Yeah, It's really also how society was structured in the West Indies as well. When the indentured people were brought to the West Indies and they were paid a wage, that kind of created this really clear hierarchy of skin tone. 
in the Caribbean. It lingers to this day. That's, Absolutely. A, that's the thing. It lingers mm. to this day. And even in politics, you can see it. When you see Indo-Caribbean person running for president versus an Afro-Caribbean person running for president, there's this great divide between the races. And it's been there since the time of indentureship. And, it, and indentureship caused that because the British tactic was really to divide and conquer. And so they would pit the races against each other so that they wouldn't unite and they wouldn't realize what was being done to them in order to combat it. And so the indentured laborers always thought, well, we're the lucky ones. We're getting paid, you know? It could appear that there were some advantages, right? Yeah. And that type of talk continued throughout my childhood. When I used to ask my family about the indentured laboring system, they would be like, well, we're the lucky ones though, because we got paid. And so it carries on throughout generations. And then even down to my grandparents' time, they had help in the house. And the help was usually Afro-Caribbean help. It's quite mind-blowing how this hierarchy was really set up. And so there was this model minority myth that was kind of fed to the Indo-Caribbeans of if you want to prosper economically and socially, then you should aspire to be like the white man. Mm. And that's exactly what they did. And they thought that because they had the privilege of their skin tone and the fact that they were being paid a wage, they would continue the idea and so after generations and generations of that as a community that kind of becomes your rule book almost to prosper yeah. and so when they come to the UK they've really just put their heads down and worked and did not make a sound so the fact that they weren't represented was due to the fact that they stayed quiet and they just blended in mm -hmm. to everyone else they look like South Asian people and when it came to racism they didn't utter a word because to them it was like, well, we're the model minority. If we just push through and educate ourselves, then we'll be like the British people in their eyes, which isn't true because it, it never is like that. When they came to the UK, they tried to fit into the Caribbean community, but there was islands like Barbados and other islands who had never actually had Indo-Caribbeans in their country. So they never really saw the Indo-Caribbeans as one of them. So then they turned to the South Asian community and the South Asian community didn't want anything to do with them because they thought they were untouchable, they were lower caste. So they were really isolated. It's such an interesting story and understanding the system of indenture as well. I did not know anything about this until we spoke. There is some evidence apparently that some migrants did prosper under the system because they saved enough money to buy a portion of land or start a business on their own. Yeah, that was common. So at the end of the contract, you were either offered to return back home, but by that time you had had your children in the West Indies, home wasn't really a concept to you anymore. And also they knew that once they left India, returning home wasn't a possibility. What they would call it is the black waters, the Kalapani. So if you would cross the black waters, you would no longer be able to come back into Indian society. So they were allowed to buy land after their contract was over. And that was also another contribution as to why there was such a big distinctive difference between the two races, because you're being paid, albeit small, but you're also allowed to buy land and prosper on this island. So what is the difference between you and me? Yeah. And on the whole, the system was largely more exploitative than beneficial. That's for sure. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Do you feel there's a real sense of belonging here for you and your family? Honestly, 
and it, it pains me to say this, but no, there wasn't a lot of issue in the Windrush scandal when it came to Indo-Caribbean people. I do know that around that time, a lot of Indo-Caribbean people, their first priority was to get their documentation all sorted out. I mean, as far as I know, I can't even imagine what it must feel like when you've been asked to come and help a country and they throw it back in your face by saying you need to go home and what is this concept of home so I can't imagine what that is like but as an Indo-Caribbean person as a half Egyptian person I do not feel that I belong here I'm welcomed here I'm embraced as a British person I never have and this is a concept that's so foreign to my parents because my mum came here at three years old and my dad was born here and they had parents that were obviously immigrants and their parents always fed them you are British you have come here you're you're British and to them they've always always felt British but for me and my siblings despite being born here and our parents even being born here, we still don't feel British. And if we don't feel British, then something must be wrong in the system. And I know so many other people that are in our generation that feel the exact same way. And especially even down to like census forms. There's no Indo-Caribbean on census forms. There's literally no way for me to describe my identity. When they're counting who is in their country and their ancestry and their history and how it plays into genetics and DNA and how it plays into migration patterns. I'm not recognized. My ancestry is not recognized. So I don't feel, I don't feel embraced, to be honest. I kind of understand that because my family are from Mm -hmm. Haiti and they migrated to the U.S. And so I was the first of my generation to be born in the U.S., but I was with my grandparents in Haiti and the Bahamas until I was about five years old. And then I came back and I remember my grandparents and my mother as well saying, you know, you must speak English. Mm. You cannot speak Creole. You cannot speak your language. You need to blend. Otherwise, you're not going to be accepted in this place. You need to become them. You need to be more American Otherwise, they will treat you badly. And I was Mm -hmm. really happy being Caribbean, being from Haiti. And then it was my family who were like, stop that. Mm. You're in America now. They're expecting you to be American. And if you don't do this, you won't be accepted here. You won't be accepted into this society. And also being worried about how my grandparents were going to be treated because they didn't really speak English. Yeah. I mean, you said at five years old, basically told to drop your whole identity, everything you know. Everything you know. But then at the same time, it's for survival. And so I get it. I so understand where they're coming Mm. from. It's just, it makes me so upset. The fact that this is how someone has to survive. It's so sad. And the fact that people are still being told this even now. What are your hopes for your future, of your community? What do you want to happen? Since I dropped the collection and I wrote an article, I got my dissertation published, all of that, it really opened me up to a community that I didn't really have a lot of access to, especially the wider Indo-Caribbean community. I kind of always had access to the Muslim Indo-Caribbean community because my family have a mosque and their mosque is just Indo-Caribbean centric. I didn't even consider the nuances within that. So once I've opened 
this identity up to everybody that I knew, it really opened me into a wider idea of what Indo-Caribbean is, that like all of the diasporas. And so I realized that we are experiencing roughly the same things, but we're not sure that we're each experiencing the right thing. There's so much doubt of, am I doing Indo-Caribbean right? Like, is this Indo-Caribbean? Do I feel Indo-Caribbean enough? And it's because we don't have anything to look at to actually be like, oh yeah, that's Indo-Caribbean. Caribbean. We're kind of like all 200 years later still figuring it out instead of just embracing the fact that, hey, you're Indo-Caribbean because you're Indo-Caribbean, because your ancestors were brought from India to the Caribbean and of your experience is valid. From my experience in the community, what I would really hope is that A, there's more representation and B, that we are comfortable enough in our own Caribbeanness and our own Indianness to be able to stand as our own ethnic group. I feel like a lot of Indo-Caribbeans, we are pulled between we're not Indian enough and we're not Caribbean enough. What are we? And it's okay. Like we are our own people. You know, we don't have to be one or the other. We can create something that's completely unique because 200 years later and the things that our ancestors went through, it's valid enough for us to be able to do that. So I really hope that the community is able to step into its own and really embrace the fact that we don't have to choose anymore. You know, you can be Indo-Caribbean and that could be the end of the story. And then more representation, which is something that I'm trying to work on. I'm actually working on getting a documentary film made so that people have some sort of media to look to and be like, oh my God, that's our story. Like, that is our story. So you've started a podcast. So tell us about your podcast and why you started it. Yeah, so I started the podcast straight out of uni. When I was in university, I was having a lot of these interesting conversations with my peers and I was saying, wow, someone should like record this and put this somewhere. And then I realized you could do that yourself. So I ended up doing it myself. <laughs> I love hearing about identity and experience within identity, not even just Indo-Caribbean identity. So I created this space to invite people that maybe I wouldn't necessarily be able to sit down and have these conversations with and just really dive into what makes them them and their stories. I had a friend of mine who had cystic fibrosis and we explored what it's like living with that condition. I have an uh, architect from Paris. I have loads of Indo-Caribbean people. <laughs> um, the podcast has become very Indo-Caribbean heavy. It's just because the community has been so opening to me that I can't help but tell their stories. But you're giving them a voice as well, Jenna. That's what you're doing. You're making sure that they have a voice in this space as well. And that's really important. You hear these stories from people and it's like, okay, you're telling them to me and I love that and it's amazing, but no one else will be able to hear these and understand like all the things that make this community beautiful because I'm half Indo-Caribbean and half Egyptian and a lot of the times I do talk about the Indo-Caribbean side more and it's just because there is such little representation such little information out there that I strongly feel this duty to really scream about it almost until Indo-Caribbean isn't like a huh what's that you know what I mean I have this like duty in me until it's a normal concept to be Indo-Caribbean. I feel like I can't stop talking about it. Well, keep talking about it. Keep your voice loud in this space. We're all about being loud around here and being a rebel. So keep your voices heard and also keep those traditions alive, those things that your family do. I mean, when we spoke before, you were telling me, you know, at parties, there's soca music and 
Caribbean food and plantain and, you know, all these amazing things that people don't expect you to have. And this is all part of your identity, right? That's all part of who you are. My family, they are very much of the, we're British. And so when we grew up, in our household, not with extended family, but in our specific household, my parents really wanted us to have this British lifestyle. And so there wasn't much culture in the household. And now I've been kind of the one to be like, hey, on celebrations, like let's make traditional Guyanese dishes. Let's make bake and all these other things that we wouldn't usually have. But like these are the times that we're supposed to be embracing Mm. our ancestry. Let's do it. And so that's what we've been doing recently. I'm getting it ready so that when I eventually have kids, it's not a foreign concept to me. <laughs> it's it's normal. It's like, hey, this is like the food of your ancestors. Um, appreciate it. That's right. And it's good. <laughs> it's damn yeah. good, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, it's been so lovely talking with you today. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with us. Your story is so interesting and beautiful at the same time. I'd love to speak with your grandmother or, you know, any of your parents to hear about their story as well. Plus, I'd love to hear their accent because I'm, I'm all about accents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we love we love a good sweet Caribbean accent. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> thank you so much for, for coming today. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, honestly. You're very welcome. Thank you. You can find Necessary Rebels on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And on Instagram at necessary underscore rebels underscore pod. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Necessary Rebels. This was an II Studios production. We'll see you for the next episode. Thank you for listening. <laughs>